This morning our passage of scripture is rather short. Uh, It's Proverbs 11, verse 10, and you'll find it on page 535 of your pew Bible. And as we've been going through the service today, I was really thinking that it's really kind of the golden rule played out on a macro level in a lot of ways. And before we read this passage, uh, I want to start by talking about something I kind of think is weird. If you ever are involved in a wedding as a guy, you'll end up being a groomsman, most likely. One of the things that you receive is a groomsman's gift. Most of the time, uh, if you're the groom, you don't know what to give for one of these gifts, so it ends up being something kind of awkward sometimes, or, you know, something like, gee, thank you so much for this thing. Uh, Well, one time, I would particularly say, I actually got a great groomsman's gift. And uh, I had never, it was a book, and for some of you, like, off the table, not a good gift, it's a book. But this was a book of prayers, so I now know that some of you, I just doubled down on how this is not appealing. How about a book of Puritan prayers, just, like, for the win, perhaps? Like, not exciting to a lot of people, but I have never had this book in my hand called The Valley of Vision. And some of you, I, I heard, like, the words coming out of your mouth, like, yes. And uh, so I opened it, and I read the very first prayer. And I'd like to read that this morning to get us started, because it talks about the paradox or the counterintuitive nature of the Christian life. So let me read this for us. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is a place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy star shines. Let me find thy light in my darkness, my life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. I enjoy this psalm, this this psalm, this prayer, because it is counterintuitive, yet it is true. And in fact, if we look at the life of Jesus, he often said things that were counterintuitive, like, if you want to be first, be last. If you want to be great, you must become a servant of all. If you want to live, you must die. The scriptures are filled with these counterintuitive ideas, and Proverbs chapter 11, verse 10 has something counterintuitive to it as well, something that seems like it just doesn't fit. That being said, let us read our passage here together. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. You may have another translation that may read, When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. 
We pray that by your spirit you would be with us and that you would teach us your word, that we might do your word. We ask that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, if you read this passage, it may seem odd to you. It may seem counterintuitive, like we were just speaking about. And it's because if you read this, it says a city, a whole city rejoices. Now, think about that for a second. All the people, any city of any size would have people of different socioeconomic classes, different races, different ideas, different political positions, whatever it might be. But a whole city rejoices because another group of people are going, having things go well for them. When was the last time your city rejoiced because one particular group had things going well for them? Most of the time, this is not what happens. This is not what we would expect to even to see if another group is prospering, that everyone would be happy. That doesn't make sense to us in a lot of ways. So what is going on? There has to be a reason that this is happening. In particular, you see here, things are going well for the righteous, or the righteous are prospering, and the whole city rejoices. What that tells us is that the city in some way has to be benefiting from the prosperity of the righteous. When things go well for the righteous, or because the righteous are there, the city rejoices. There has to be a reason. They have to be benefiting in some way. And my argument this morning is that the city responds this way, you could say rather counterintuitively, because the righteous live counterintuitively. They live not maybe as the world might expect. So our aim this morning is to see and understand how this works and what it might mean for us. So we'll do that in three, in three ways. First, we'll look at the rejoicer or the righteous, the one who rejoices other people. And that is leading off our passage. Then we will look at the rejoiced. That is the city, the one who is rejoicing. And then we'll kind of consider the implications for us. So let's just get right into it. Let's talk about the rejoicer or the righteous. They loom large in this passage. Uh, J. Gresham Mason said that etymology has spoiled many a good sermon. And you're like, that word etymology should just ruin this sermon. I don't know what that means. Uh, the word etymology means like the meaning of words. Like, and you've heard maybe pastors or preachers do this. They'll, they'll say, well, you know, this word in the original language means X, Y, and Z. And you're like, thank you. Uh, appreciate it. Uh, and J. Gresham Machen said that go, people going off on these sort of tangents can ruin a good sermon. Well, I'm going to do it anyhow for just a second for two reasons. One, I would not be so bold to assume that J. Gresham Machen would assume that this sermon is good or that uh, it isn't always bad. I actually think it's actually helpful in this situation. So because I think that the righteous, this group of people, is the actual linchpin or the key to why this passage makes sense. It wouldn't make sense if there wasn't something true about this group of people. So let's look at what this means. Now, first of all, I would say the righteous is a name given to this group of people. It is not their own designation of themselves. The Pharisees probably would have been really proud to be like, we're Pharisees, we're super pious. That is not, this, this is not a braggadocious kind of a statement, but the righteous, um, and we go out trying to define this. Well, what does this mean? And I'll give you two, two descriptions of the meaning of this. One author said, the righteous are the just, the people who follow God's heart and God's ways, and who see everything they have as gifts from God to be stewarded for his purposes. We'll revisit that in case you missed it. But here's the second 
definition or description. It says, The righteous in the book of Proverbs are by definition those who are willing to disadvantage themselves for the community, while the wicked we saw earlier in this passage are those who put their own economic, social, and personal needs ahead of others. In one way to say it, it's the opposite of the golden rule, which we just heard read not too long ago. So for all intents and purposes, I would say that these two definitions are actually really good definitions, and they do align themselves well with Jesus and what Jesus did, because you consider Jesus isn't the righteous. Jesus is the righteous one, and he always followed God's heart and God's ways, and he always did God's will, and he always did what was good for others. In fact, he greatly disadvantaged himself so that others might have it go well for them. And when people encountered Jesus and they saw him for who he really was, they rejoiced. Now, if we combine these two definitions that I was just talking about, one was talking about who we really are as the righteous, and the other one talking about how they're actually a blessing, we kind of, we get something full orb, so to speak, but I want to go in to who the righteous are and to what they do in case we kind of missed it as I heard that read. So let's begin with who are the righteous? And as the first definition said or indicated for us, the righteous are people who are fundamentally in love with God. And they live in alignment with God's ways. I guess, you know, most people stop at the end of a sermon to talk about, are you right with Jesus? But if we're going on from this point, if the righteous are those who fundamentally love God and live in alignment with his ways, that's what it means to be a Christian in 2017. And so I think the inventory question we all have to take right now, right here, is am I in Christ? Because the rest of the stuff we're about to talk about is talking about someone else. Are we in Christ? Now, in our modern context, those of us in this room right now, the righteous are the people who love Jesus more than anything else every day. The people who love Jesus daily and seek to do his will daily, regardless of the circumstances. Now, I will grant to you, this is a very rare thing to see lived out perfectly. In fact, you'll never see it lived out perfectly except in Jesus. But this is the heart and desire of a believer this is, let me put it this way, this is not your nominal Southern Christianity. This is, and I don't take that bad because we're Southerners right here, at least by transplant or by birth. But what I'm talking about, what I'm saying is this is a faith that has a robust desire to know Jesus, to follow Jesus. It's informed, it's intentional, and it's passionate. So if we were to say, who are the righteous in 2017? I would say it's the church. It's the church of Jesus. We are the righteous ones, and we are imperfect. And so you might say, oh, then we can't really rejoice the city. We can't do what this passage was talking about. I would say that, that's silly. You think that the righteous were perfect in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 10? You think that group of people were perfect? By no means. We're speaking relatively here in a sense that they are the righteous ones, although they are imperfect. But also, we should note that these righteous, they were prospering, or things were going well for them. And you may think, well, things aren't going that well for me right now. Uh, Well, I would grant to this. uh, If you study the history of Israel, 
the, and the people of God, the righteous, they didn't have long stretches of things going well for them either. There was always a mixed bag. That's us too. In some ways, maybe one or two ways even, things are going well for you. So relatively speaking, we are prospering. The church, we are the righteous. We are prospering in some ways. You have some strength, some positives in your life. You have some abilities. Well, all that is to say is we have the ability to love the city well, to love our neighbor well, to love others well, to bless the city. Another way to say it is we have a way that we can better the community around us. So the righteous are those who love God and love his ways and have the ability to help. So what is it that we do then? What is it that the righteous do? Let me start with an illustration. Uh, Football is soon to be coming, so I'm, my mind is often running towards football. And uh, Tom Brady, who's arguably the greatest quarterback in the history of the NFL, just turned 40 years old, having won a Super Bowl last year. And if you ask him, he says he wants to play football until he's 45 years old. That's mind-blowing to me, and it should be to you. It's my, I'm 37 years old, and I played pickup soccer on Tuesday, and my feet felt like they were going to fall off the next day. This man is playing professional football at the highest level. And he may set records this year. And so he asks the question, how can he do this? How can he be 40 years old and about to go through the rigors of a football season and be the best? Well, the answer is actually kind of simple. He's organized his entire life around being a great quarterback. If you know anything about him, he watches, he literally watches film year-round. Sounds like a great time. But... He watches film year-round. He practices year-round. He works on flexibility year-round. He stretches all the time. I can't get my head around that. He watches every bit of food he puts into his mouth so that his body is at peak performance. He didn't used to always do this, but he does it now. He keeps learning how to be a good quarterback, too, every year. Being a top-flight quarterback is his identity and his purpose in life. So what he does is he intentionally organizes every piece of his life around that mission and that goal. Back to us in Proverbs 11. The righteous, because they love God and desire to do his will and live according to his purposes, they intentionally organize everything in their life around that goal. The righteous, in another way to say this, the righteous intentionally steward all areas of their life, all the gifts God has given them, all the goodness he has shown to them to accomplish his purposes in this world. Tom Brady stewards everything at his disposal to be a good quarterback. I'll tell you right now, football is not a very good God, and it will not repay you back very well. But God is a good God. And so we have all the reason to do this. So if you are in Christ and your purpose as a believer is to glorify God and advance the kingdom of the world, we have to start asking our questions. How are we stewarding God's gifts to us, our talents, our abilities, our money, our possessions? Are we doing it for his will and for him? We're about to touch on something radical right here. And perhaps I say it's radical because when I came to a point of personal application for this passage— it felt radical to me because I realized the only real application to this passage is for me to become a different person. 
and for me to change and alter my lifestyle to fall in line with what God's up to in the world, to be the type of person who might actually be one who would cause another to rejoice. It means that I cannot simply use my talent, my time, my money however I want, or like my friends use theirs. In fact, my friends have nothing to do with this. How other people are doing this has nothing to do with me. Everything, when I came to understand that everything is on the table in my life, perhaps my dreams about the future should be altered. Like what I'm hoping for. Is it even right? Is it in line with this? Perhaps my comforts that I've afforded myself in this life just aren't appropriate. I don't like that. I don't like to go there. The truth is, the righteous that we see here blessing the city in Proverbs chapter 11 are those who are just living differently, living differently in such a way that it would rejoice a city. That's not normal. It requires a lifestyle change, maybe a drastic change, and I do think God is probably going to put his finger on our hearts or in a sore spot and touch us and say, let's talk about your spending habits, or let's talk about how you use your time. Let's, let's talk about how, who you're befriending and why you're befriending them. Let's talk about how you view the city that you live in. Are you cynical? If God does that to you, if he really gets up in your business and challenges you, that is good. In fact, I would argue that that is great. It is a very healthy part of the Christian life to have God come into your life and challenge you to grow. And the reason I say this is because if God is not constantly altering our lives and our lifestyle, it's likely a sign that we're not walking very closely to him. If I'm walking closely to God, my life is always in contrast to his ways and his will. Okay, so so far we've seen who we are to be, the righteous, the ones who know God, the ones who love God, and the ones who seek to do his will and follow his ways, and to treat others as we would like to be treated. And if we do this, the community we live in will rejoice. That's what this passage tells us. So let's consider that group for a moment, the city or the one being rejoiced. On May 2nd in 2011, I, uh, I witnessed a very rare thing in my life. It was the entire country celebrating. Everybody. It seemed like everyone in America was celebrating on this day. It was on May 2nd, 2011, that Osama bin Laden was killed by U.S. Navy SEALs. And I remember turning on the television, hearing that news, and there was literal dancing in the streets outside of the White House. Regardless of political persuasion or where you came from or what you thought, everyone was celebrating. And it wasn't like, yay, or it wasn't like birthday celebration. It was something completely other. People were genuinely happy. They were truly celebrating because a huge victory had been accomplished and an evil overcome. When we get to Proverbs chapter 11, verse 10, the city is rejoicing like this. And I'll say this, the city, I don't, everyone in your mind right now probably has some kind of idea of what a city is. 
Uh, some of you are thinking, well, the, the city I grew up in was 2,000 people. Well, the city I grew up in was 2 million people. It all works, because the city is a place of rev residence. It's a place where people live, work, and play. But regardless of the city here, it says that they were rejoicing like this, because the word rejoicing here is actually only used two times in the entire Old Testament, and it always has this deep, passionate, like, outburst of happiness. And it comes usually from being freed from an oppressor, at least the other time we see it. And so it is this deep rejoicing. And all that to tell you is someone who observes this passage, what it tells you is that the righteous are living in, in such a way that it is bringing deep, life-changing things into the city. Something is happening because of them. And this is their response. So we know that it's happening. The city is rejoicing and the city is also the place that the righteous are to be involved in. Now, if you talk to some people, some people will just say, well, the city is a mess. And the city or the community, it's just a place where it's corrupting. It can do damage to you. And, I mean, we shouldn't get involved with the problems of the community or the city. That's not our job. And to that I just say, our scripture and our doctrine don't really allow such a view. Just consider that is your neighbor. And consider the golden rule we just read earlier. That's not an option. The city and the community is a place worth our time, and we can't ignore it. This is obviously true in Proverbs chapter 11. They got involved. They were involved in such a way that it changes the way the people view the people of God. They're happy they are there. They are happy things are going well for them. We don't see the world in such terms as sacred and secular. No, we live in a world that belongs to God. And we're advancing one kingdom, a holistic kingdom of people in place as we go. And we know this because this is what Jesus did. Jesus came to heal people spiritually, but he also came to heal the physical brokenness. And when Jesus comes back again, he's going to draw people to himself, but he's going to fix every wrong that has been done on this earth and restore it completely. The implication then is, well, for us now, as the people of God now, what is our mission? What are we supposed to be doing? Well, we have our mission. That is to make disciples of all nations. And to teach them to obey everything God had given them. But we also know from the Lord's Prayer that we're to do on earth as it is done in heaven. That's part of what we do. So we're supposed to bring foretaste of heaven into this world. That is what we do. This means fighting for good marriages. This means fighting for good families and good relationships. It means fighting for good living conditions even if it doesn't affect you. It means fighting human trafficking, even if it's not your kid. It means fighting against racism. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. To rejoice a city requires the righteous to have a full-fledged, full-orbed, robust Christian world in life view. This is what I think it really means to follow the great commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself or to follow the golden rule like we read in Matthew chapter 7 if not what else does it mean if it doesn't mean to love God and love other people 
even in a sacrificial way. So the celebrating city is a place and a people who are benefiting from the presence and contributions of the righteous. So what is it that the righteous do to cause an entire community to celebrate? That's the question. That's the thing we need to know when we walk out of here today. How is that happening? What is going on that makes this happen? Well, I'll talk about it in terms of things that it is and it isn't. Okay, so first of all, what I don't think it is, and this is kind of a metaphor and I don't want it to sound too drastic, but what it is not is it's not the scraping off of the crumbs of the tables of prosperity that we have. That means, you know, the excess, the stuff I don't need or want, that, you know, if they were bad off enough, it would be helpful. Now, let me explain that. Uh, I read one, one author who said, it's more than taking a bag of clothes to the thrift store. Uh, another said, it's more than giving cans to a food drive. Even though donating to a thrift store and giving cans to a food drive are important and they're helpful. But they're, the author's point at that point was to say, that doesn't rejoice the city. That doesn't change the way people view the, like, their circumstances. It doesn't fix the big problems. Stewarding our excess without actually making any real sacrifice doesn't change the community. Because the reality is, is the things I was just talking about, people scraping off the crumbs of their excess, we've been doing that for generations, and it doesn't change or rejoice a city. What would it actually take to rejoice a community of people? It's different than this because it's more than this. I'll start by saying what it is. What I think it is, it starts with this at least. It starts by every person who would be identified as the righteous or a believer stewarding the gifts God has given them, stewarding the abilities God has given them, every possession that they have, stewarding them for the purposes of God. And it starts with aiming for something. What is it that we're aiming for? Well, We've heard in this pulpit preached many, several times since I've been a member of this church, or at this church, uh, the, the, um, George Robertson and Dr. Fulov preach on Jeremiah chapter 29. It says that they're aiming for, the aim for the city is the peace and prosperity of the city. That just comes from Jeremiah. That's just talking about the shalom, this overall flourishing at every level and for every people. But I think it's also, you can go into the New Testament. It is Revelation chapter 21. It's the new heavens and the new earth. It is us bringing foretaste of that back here, of making this place more like the place that is to come. This is the kind of stewarding that we're supposed to be using all these gifts and abilities and money and possessions, everything to get towards that. This is intentional, it's personal, and it's sacrificial. I'll say that again. This kind of stewarding will always be intentional, personal, and sacrificial. Now, personal, sacrificial, intentional. Think about it. You, to do that, you have to know a community. You have to know the people of the community. You, to seek the good of the city. Not to use it for your own benefit only, but to actually seek the good of others. It requires us to ask how we can address the deeper issues and problems facing people, families, institutions. Even if they're systemic and toxic, we ask the question, well, what might I have in my life that could be helpful? 
It requires us getting involved in the mess at a personal level. Um, and I say this because I was taught this. I was taught this by one of our former pastors, uh, Tom Anderson, who then went to pastor at Strong Tower Fellowship. And he taught me this because one time he called me and he asked me if I would help someone. And like immediately I said, sure, I'll help. And he said, I don't think you're getting what I'm saying. You need to stop and pray. You need to stop and pray if you really want to get involved. I was like, I can help. I can do that. He's like, I don't think you understand what I'm talking about then. And as he went on to explain it, I understood. I wasn't just helping for a moment. I was getting involved. And to get involved, uh, I soon learned would mean a lot of my time. It could potentially mean a lot of frustration. It could mean a lot of setbacks, sacrifices on my part, work on my part, perhaps really big inconveniences for me. That's what it means to get involved and to help a person who may need a big change. Now, at that point also, as I started to think about that and pray about it, and I think this is important for all of us, is I realized, who am I? Isn't, it's not like I have everything together and I'm God's gift to someone. I'm a person in need too. I'm broken, and I benefit also from all the other, quote-unquote, righteous people who bring their talents, gifts, and abilities to bear on the kingdom. I benefit from that, and I'm just passing that on to someone else. But you know what? The deepest change that has ever taken place in my life or your life is because someone got involved, and they got to know you, and they got down in the mess. And if you've had really hard things go on in your life, you've had people cry with you, you've had people go to bat for you, to put their name on the line for you, people who have reached out an olive branch so that you could get the stuff up that you need. This is the stuff that we're talking about. Now I'm about to tell you guys something you men and women, something that you already know. And, uh, and it's something that I think we observe. I think you could easily say that the world constantly looks to our government to fix all the issues and problems that we face in our communities. That, that is the normal place that people look. But I'd probably suggest that they're looking in the wrong place for change. And that perhaps we are looking in the wrong place for change as well. The Church of Jesus Christ and his people are the agents of change that will truly cause a city to rejoice. Do we believe that? Do you believe that? That's us? That's you? For the righteous ones are the only ones who can point people to Jesus. They're the only ones who can selflessly build and create ways for people to be right with God, to be right with others, to be right with themselves, and to be right with all of creation. And I, I, I don't say that lightly. Think about what I just said. To be right with God, right with others, right with self, and right with creation, that is a description of shalom. That is a description of the new heavens and the new earth. That's what it will be like. Only the church offers that. No one else is going to bring that. And that's what the righteous do. That's what we do here on earth. That's what you and I can do. So the question is, is what are the implications for us? I said earlier, it may require a lifestyle change. It may require some sacrifices. It may mean that you have some talents and abilities that you've had but had no outlets. It may require us to start thinking, well, how could I possibly use those for others? So what do we do to rejoice the city? Where do we even start? I'll give two things, one general, one specific. Generally, I would ask us all to start praying. 
Start praying and start asking. Not like, don't pray just once. Pray regularly, daily. Start asking the question, how have things gone well for me? How, what do I have that I can give to love and help other people? So I ask you, do you have time? Is that something you have? Do you have a skill? A talent? Do you have money? Do you have possessions that would be useful? Do you have knowledge that could be helpful to someone? Do you have wisdom to help mentor someone? Do you just have the ability of manual labor? Do you know people that could potentially help? Start praying. Start looking. Start thinking about what it is that you could do. And here's, that was the general, now specifically. What is one thing we all might be able to do? Well, uh, let me start. It's, it's obviously close to football season because here's another football illustration. Sorry about it. Um, this is how a football play in a football game works. If we're talking about defense, there are 11 players on defense, and everyone's job is to do their job. And if on that play everybody does their job, the play or the goal is done. It is won. Everyone together doing their job accomplishes the very thing that they are aiming to do. Now, I want to apply this principle to the church. As individuals, we all work together. The idea is that the body of believers, every day, every week, after we worship together on the Lord's Day, we are sent out into the world. God strategically scatters us into places of importance. The righteous are spread throughout the city on a daily basis to work towards making this place more like the place that it is to come. Think about everything I was just saying, things that you could potentially offer, and then think about your vocation. Your vocation encompasses your time, your skill, your talent, your money, your wisdom, your knowledge, and your labor. Every day, you have the opportunity to do your job, whether you are a carpenter like Jesus, or a business person, or you're in the home working. You can do your job just like Jesus would if he was here doing that job this day. That should be kind of mind-blowing to us. But if we are all doing that together, if we are all doing our job, all 11 of us at the same time, but think about it, way more than 11, everyone strategically spread. You understand, they're, they're just the vocations and schooling happening in this, this room right now, we cover almost every area of Macon. God is strategically sending out people to be agents of redemption into every area of Macon to rejoice those who we would come in contact with because we would treat them as we would like to be treated. Amy Sherman, in her book, Kingdom Calling, retells an illustration that a pastor gave at a workshop she was at. And he started off just walking around, and he started handing out pink spoons to everybody there. Um, and they were the pink Baskin-Robbins spoons. You know those spoons, right? If you, or any little sample spoon at an ice cream shop. Uh, and the pastor was giving them out, and the idea was, he, he's like, you're a pink spoon. Your life and your love of God can be a pink spoon. Because that little pink spoon gives you a foretaste of just how good the ice cream is, and it makes you want it. Right? God has strategically sent ambassadors of Christ into the world to be little pink spoons wherever we go <laughs> to show how good Jesus really is. 
to show you how good the kingdom really can be and to advance that kingdom. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would make us men and women who would love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and would love our neighbor as ourself. Help us to be intentional about doing that. Help us to love you uh, in front of people. And help us to love our neighbor in a way that might even cost us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.